The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, I invite your attention this morning as we are back in the book of Mark, chapter 7. Mark, chapter 7 this morning. And uh, if you're visiting with us or if it's been a while, it's hard to believe. Easter was two weeks ago, two snowy Sundays ago. That shouldn't surprise you by now. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a blizzard by Wednesday if it keeps up. But uh, it's been two weeks since we had Easter. Christ is risen. Church, he's what? He's risen indeed. He's still risen today as he was then. And uh, we, we rejoice in that. Uh, if you're visiting with us or if it's been a while, we are, we're going verse by verse to the book of Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 7 this morning, and it's been a month since we preached on this, so we'll give a little intro before we get there a little later, but just to remind you of those things. And uh, right after the service today, we're going to have a quick time of prayer for Jimmy Shieldman, who will be going out to the Navy in the next couple days. Uh, and Jimmy, uh, we'll have you come up front afterwards and, and, and do that, if that's okay. And uh, following this, there's some cake afterwards if you'd like to partake of uh, in the Welcome Center. Not now. Uh, uh, save your, save your, your stuff for later, but we'll do that after service. And we look forward to sending Jimmy off. It's a major life change, but uh, thank God for his service as we do. Well, Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be. Uh, Michael Horton, if, uh, you know, I don't often give you people to, this guy's not dead, by the way. He's still living. So uh, for some of you, that's a, that's a praise in itself. But if you're looking for someone to read, Michael Horton is a, a professor at Westminster Seminary out in California. He wrote a book about 10 years ago called Christless Christianity. And in the book, he tells about an illustration I've given before, but it's been a while, according to my notes, and I think it's apropos. He asked the question, what would things look like if Satan took over a city? First, he he frames in your mind that there would be mayhem on a massive scale. There would be defiant, immoral behavior. You know, churches would close down. There would be violent protests. You say, Darren, this sounds like America today. And worshipers would be dragged off. But Michael Horton actually stole this from a Presbyterian brother uh, from uh, D- Donald Ray Barnhouse in the 50s, who was at 10th Presbyterian. And he told this story Barnhouse did, and, and Michael Horton quotes him. He said, if, if Satan took over a city, it might be a little bit different than you think. In fact, if Satan took over a city, all the bars would be closed. Adult entertainment would be gone. The streets would be more pristine than Mayberry was for Leave It at Beaver. Everyone would smile. There'd be no swearing. Kids would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Wow. If Satan took over, yeah, because most of us, if we're honest, if that's the city we describe, clean streets, absence of adult entertainment, uh, people who have manners, who are kind, people who say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, that's what we want, isn't it? In a sense, that's what we long for. We, we, We want that. But if we're really honest where Christ isn't preached, if we're really honest, there's only a slight discomfort with that. Because humanly speaking, the truth be told, there are many of us who would say this, as long as the church is full, people are are decent. After all, the goal is, Pastor, for churches to be full, right? And, And for people to behave themselves. But the answer is we know to that is what? No, not at all. That's not what we're talking about. But closely related to that is the idea that we have to get back to a wholesome time. A time different than our own. And the whole our wholesome time, what Barnhouse referred to, is when Satan ran a town. 
Now, this picture I'm going to put up should arrest your attention and arrest in mind. But in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, as, as, as God was speaking through uh, to, the, to the churches, he spoke through the church at Sardis and said, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you really are dead. See, we want to go back to an era as every church or every culture wants to go back to the golden era. The Jews did that with Paul, uh, Solomon and David. We want mothers who stay at home and cook and have clean, wearing beautiful dresses and smile for their husbands. If everyone walked around with a shirt and tie, if everyone was clean cut and well behaved, we want to go back to a time before this nasty culture war of the 60s when everything went to hell in a handbasket. For Americans, even myself, for most of us, that would be the time of the 1950s. If we could go back to a time where things seemed better. But friends, may we remind ourselves that there is a Korean War that there was still mass discrimination, that there were still 3,300 people, children who died in 1952 of polio where 157,000 were paralyzed by it. There was, there was Playboy started. There was Emmett Till was murdered. There was scandalizing things across the board, books written by, about Gypsy and Lolita. And I, I'm not going to tell you what those are from the pulpit. You can look those up. And in 1959, Fidel Castro took over in Cuba. But these are the glory days, aren't they? These are the glory days. Those were America's heyday. We won the war. We were prospering and all these things. But just like Barnhouse points out with that city that was run by Satan, so too we can pick out a time in our lives to say, man, if we could just go back to that, life would be good. For Royals fans, can I be trite for a second? If we could relive 1984, 1985, and 2015, life is good. But we know that's not how it works. Friends, they had a reputation in those days for being alive, but they were dead. And they had a reputation for being alive spiritually, but they were not. What we're going to look at today is a very similar pattern. The Jews had it all figured out. They knew if they did this or they did that, they could get away with what they were doing. They had traditions. But friends, if you can't live up to the expectations of others or rules, how will you ever expect to live up to God's? That's really the big question today. Because if your debt has been paid in full, why do we act if there's a spiritual, spiritual mortgage hanging over our heads? Because we say to ourselves, if we could just go back. Friends, that's exactly what the Jews did today, and Jesus rebuked them for it. Boy, this is a fun one to preach, isn't it? That's why the big idea today, if you're visiting, this is the, the rifle shot understanding of the whole scripture. But we're not to trust our heart. We're not to trust our head. We're not to trust our friends or science or traditions more than the word of God. Because the moment we get away from this is the moment we get away from everything God has intended for us. And friends, whenever the truth of God establishes a hold and begins to move forward in a highly religious culture, there is going to be a violent clash. Because God's word is going to go up against the culture. And God's word is going to say this, the culture is going to say that, and they're going to meet somewhere in the middle. And that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. For a thousand dead years of religion, there was a violent collision between the biblical truth and the empty external traditions of men. And so every true progress is conditioned by a new and deeper study of God's word. Today, two lethal warnings. It took a while to come up with that phrase, let me tell you. Two lethal warnings about tradition, about trying to go back to a golden age, about doing things that may not be prescribed in the Bible, two lethal warnings about traditions. Traditions turn lethal when we 
enforce man-made traditions as God-made commandments. You ever been there before? Well, this is how we've done it for 90 years, son, and you better get in line or you're not, I can outlive you. Don't you worry about that, daggum. Come on now. You've been there, done that. But it also, this passage is going to warn us that we can use man-made traditions to nullify God-made principles. We can say, well, this is what we do. I don't care what the Word of God says. This is what we do, Pastor, and therefore, the Word is just the Word. Be very careful. Friends, this speaks very much to our culture today because as you look across the landscape of America, and I'm not praying for anything, but God would bring the gospel to America. That's what we need. Legislate all day, but the gospel is what's going to change hearts, people. That is what we know is that this earthquake that happened in the lives of these Jews we're going to see in Mark 7 is something that we need to be reminded of because we are so easy. We are Baptists. Man, we love tradition. (laughs) Potlucks, business meetings, what else? Run the list. We're Baptists. We sit in the same seat each week. We sing the same songs. We do the same routine. We stand up. We sit down. Not saying that's bad, but we're traditional people. But friends, even in our traditions, I pray that God brings the wrecking ball of his word, if it's necessary, that's the phrase, to wreck it down so that we might see more of him. These Pharisees have traveled 90 miles to confront Jesus about the very things his disciples are not doing. Look, when Jesus came preaching the pure, unadulterated word of God, things started happening. There we are in Mark chapter 7. Will you join me in standing if you're able? We stand in honor of God's word. Uh, if you're able this morning, and uh, let's read about this. Told you, this is not one that you want to preach. This is one that you want to go home and hide in a closet and press play and let you listen to, and I'm not here. Uh, That's kind of how this goes. But this is the Word of God. This is why we go verse by verse, because it applies in every way. Hear God's Word this morning. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, that's about 90 miles, guys, like here to uh, Concordia, or so, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled and unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups, pots and copper vessels, and dining couches. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do not worship, do they worship me, teaching the doctrines of men, as the commandments of men. Doctrines, the commandments of men. And Jesus says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his mother or his father, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down over many such things you do. Wow. Guys, this is why we preach verse by verse. Because if I were a pastor... I would not preach through these verses. This doesn't increase your tithing. It doesn't increase your popularity. It doesn't increase winning points and winning people. But this is the word of God, and we need to hear it this morning, because we, even in 21st century America in the church, have things that we may need to square up as Jesus squared the Pharisees up. Will you pray with me this morning as we go before him? 
Father, this is a tough passage. Tough because it, we're human and we know our hearts are so quickly. Father, our hearts are the biggest idiots in the world because we listen to them all the time. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, Jeremiah said. Who can understand it? But, Father, we pray that the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouths are pleasing in your sight, O God, as the psalmist prayed. Father, as we pray, I, I, I pray you bring comfort through this message somehow. I pray you bring conviction by your spirit. You bring challenge by the scripture. Not by my words, Father. Put me out of the way. Let your words speak as only you can. Father, come down now by your spirit into our hearts. We love you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You know, it was interesting this last week, and some of you participated on this. Uh, one of the joys of having a Facebook account is sometimes you get to ask questions you never could anywhere else and get lots of, lots of interesting answers. And I, I, I share some of these by way of introduction uh, uh, to the first point. But Jesus is going to tell us there are two lethal things about traditions. And the first is, is that we enforce man-made traditions as God-made commandments. And I asked some people on Facebook, I said, tell me some things. I asked Presbyterian friends, I asked Baptist friends, and I asked on my Facebook, which has all sorts of friends of all stripes, what are some things you did growing up in the church that weren't necessarily in the Bible? Now, I'm not saying I agree with all these things aren't scriptural. I just want you to hear what they said. Are you ready? And you're going to be surprised. You'll chuckle at some, and others will say, really? All right, here's the list. Deacons essentially functioning as elders, and the pastor essentially functioning as the de facto CEO of the church. It happens. I didn't really grow up in the church, but the church I was in, I was first saved, had made a tradition of running off pastors every 1.5 years. Yes, every 1.5 years like clockwork. Uh, that's not a good one. Someone said praying to Mary and the saints. Another said special music. Again, I'm not saying, just, just take it for what it is. Altar calls. One of them said having air conditioning and electricity. Amen. Uh, that'll get some of you guys. Uh, one of them quoted, I see that uh, every eye closed, every head bowed, nobody looking, raise your hand, come to the altar and make it right. Only having communion twice a year, someone said. Wearing shoes in college shirts, I'm pretty sure Jesus went barefoot sometimes. On the final song of the service, our church joined hands across the aisle. It's, an, a, it's a, not a biblical precedent, but it promoted a healthy sense of unity. I thought that was a good one. Many of you grew up in those churches. Easter egg hunts, potlucks, Hall Halloween celebrations, reserve pews, and complaints that aren't taken seriously. Oh, I love this one. Business meetings are not in the Bible, therefore we should not have them, someone said. <laughs> See you at 4 o'clock tonight. <laughs> Fall carnivals to raise money, but stress not to gamble, but buy lottery tickets for people in the church or raffle tickets. Ooh. Child dedications, altar calls, prayer of salvation, or the sinner's prayer. Uh, someone in this room quoted this one. Infant baptism, female pastors, and liberal theology. Oh, this next one's going to cut to your Baptist heart. Someone said, what's the tradition you did in church that went in the Bible? Super Bowl parties. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to really throw the Baptist at you here. Some of them said that they did communion with grape juice. Watch out now. Someone said not a tradition, a tradition they did that's not in the Bible was, I would say, potlucks, but I think that was in the book of Acts, dot, dot, dot. So we'll let that be. And someone quoted a long list. They said, choir, solos, hymns from the hymnal, organ, piano, music, simple Romans road salvation, not wanting to be baptized, altar calls, house, call, house calls, hospital calls, church cleaning days, BBS, mission trips, testimony, and prayer requests. Whew. Did you get all that? And finally, someone said wisely, there are a lot of things that aren't in the Bible, some bad, some might be good, some are just neutral, but it's important to learn at least that we see we do a lot of things in the church simply because of tradition. 
It's a very eye-opening list, isn't it? And there's there's uh, 158 comments if you want the whole list. It's on my desk. Uh, I thank you to all those who participated. But friends, this is the question. How far are we to take our traditions before they become what we're going to see the Pharisees do? How far do we take things that we go through and take for granted that you and I do on a regular basis at this church before we say, whoa, that's man-made, that's not God-made, go away from that. You ready to answer that question the best we can? Let's get in the text. Mark chapter 1, chapter 7, verse 1. You see these guys coming down to investigate to see whether Jesus was walking in line with everything else. It says here that the Pharisees gathered to him. Guys, they have walked 90 miles. It's like walking from here to Concordia, walking from here to Maryville, just to catch Jesus breaking their traditions. And the Pharisees were the conservative sect. I want to remind you that. They would be friends of us. They, they, they gave over the smallest details of keeping the law. They believed the Bible and everything, but on the Bible they added stuff upon stuff upon stuff upon stuff to the point you didn't even recognize Scripture from tradition. But tradition is built on external religion, and it never calls us to repentance. Tradition never calls us to self-denial or obedience or, 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 or to get away from superficiality. You see, because for one tradition, they required ten more. For instance, if you're a bug died on your coffee pot in those days, what are you supposed to do? The bug is dirty. You can't touch the bug. So if the bug fell on this part of the oven, you did ten of these things. If the bug fell on this part of the oven, you'd do ten of those things. It's kind of nasty to think about, but these are real-life questions. So I want you to know that these people were not insincere in trying to do. They were trying to live out the Word of God. But what happened is that tradition overtook what God said. And they're, they, they're, they're separated. They want to be out of the world. They were away from Gentiles. They were away from tax collectors, these Pharisees. They were away from Jews. They were away from separated ones. Uh, they, they, wanted to do, they wanted to do it right. And then you have these other guys, the scribes. Dave Holdsworth isn't here this morning, but uh, well, lawyer in residence. But th this was a profession. They were the lawyers. These were the guys that copied everything down to make sure it was right, to get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And they came from Jerusalem, 90 miles, to come and figure this out. But they hated Jesus. Oh, golly, did they hate Jesus because he spoke from God, which was a higher authority, because he didn't honor their traditions. He associated with sinners. Instead of going out like Jesus told his disciples, they wholly huddled in. They had a great influence on the people, and Jesus was perfectly holy. And do you notice what it says there? That, that clash is starting. It says they saw. They saw. The truth and tradition are going to fight until the battle is done. And they saw some of his disciples, maybe three or four of them, who, who knows, and, and the, it just basically says that they, they were not washing accordingly. Look what the Bible says. And they came down and they saw that some of his disciples with hands that were undefiled or defiled. Now, I want you to know I'm a germaphobe. Many of you all are. You carry that germ X stuff around with you all over the place. Your hands are more callous than a construction worker because you're like alcoholing it all the time. This is not the type of cleansing they were talking about. They're not talking about sanitariness. They're talking about ceremonialness, the ritual of it. In order to be spiritual, you had to be ritually clean. And friends, they spend their entire life trying to understand what all these laws meant. You'd be lost. I want to remind you, and Amy will put this up on the screen, that revival is simply 
biblical Christianity allowed to be itself, taken straight, without any inhibiting traditions or trends. Do you know why the gospel spreads like wildfire? It's not because we Americanize the gospel. It's because the gospel becomes un-American. Did you catch that? Why did the gospel spread so far and so wide? It's because every nation, every tribe, every tongue was welcome. If you repent and believe the gospel, you can become one of us. There's nothing wrong with tradition until your tradition becomes your religion. It will make you scream louder, make you kick harder, and these claim to be from God, but they were not from him. Friends, I pray that our church stands on this principle, that we allow nothing more that would take away the power of God from being the power of God. And you notice there in verses 3 and 4 that uh, Mark here is going to explain what traditions that they have. There's a, remember, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, those without Christ, or those who were without a Jewish background, rather. And he needed to inform them what was going on. You notice your Bible may have a parenthesis there in verses 3 and 4. There's a reason for that. It's because he's going to tell them why they're doing this. For a Gentile, they'd be like, well, that's just silly. But he has to explain why. It's a, it's a, a causal sentence here. And so he basically explains to them, this is the tradition of the elders. And any group needs to have some direction. Friends, we have a business meeting tonight. That's some direction. But these people had taken their direction above the word of God to the point where Jesus had to call them out for sin. I mean, if we set a policy for you to turn off your cell phones before coming into worship, that's not a bad thing, is it? But if we say you have to turn off your cell phone, and if you don't, you're not going to heaven, that's probably not very good. I hope you will come up and tackle me before that gets out of my mouth. It's not true. They felt they needed to protect the word of God. They were fencing it. I mean, they had laws like that you were forbidden to look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. I think it's sin not to look at a mirror on the Sabbath day for the, the rest of us who have to come in contact with you. Amen? Or they felt that if you had to pick something up, like uh, you, if you wear false teeth, and I don't know any of you who do, you sing well, you had to keep them in. Because if you had to take them out and put them on, that's considered work. Therefore, you can't do it. Or if you had a hanky. Some of you carry hankies. I love Kleenex. You love hankies. It all works. But because reaching down for a hanky on the Sabbath day was considered to be work, you just tie it around your neck like a, like a bib at a barbecue restaurant. It's pretty much what it would look like. If a man had a wooden leg and his house caught on fire on the Sabbath, what do you do? What do you do? Do you carry your wooden leg to go save your house or do you just whatever? You don't go save your house if your wooden leg isn't on. That's considered work. Isn't that crazy? It's just craziness. And this is what they did. So they, they, they had many other things. They had rules about food and rules about cleansing and all these sorts of things. But you would have to cleanse yourself, but you would have to clean the cup and pop before you put it down. Now, we have three small kids. We understand this. Seth picks up my drink. I'm probably not going to drink after him as much as I love him. Who knows where that little mouth has gone and whatever. You know the, the drill. But these were not things God told them to do. These are things they just did. In Matthew 23, 25, Jesus said, whoa, as many woes there. Not like, whoa, but like, hey, you're in trouble. Listen up. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. It's kind of like you came to our house and you see a sparkly cup. We don't have many of those, by the way, so if you come, ask for it. We'll bring it out for you. It's a Dollar Tree special. It works. But you come to our house and you get a cup, and it has golden on the outside. It's amazing, right? 
And then you get on the inside and there's dried meat. There's lipstick and there's dried milk. That sounds about accurate for our house. That is kind of the spiritual lives of these Pharisees. They knew what to say. They knew how to conduct themselves, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. The application of this, friends, I think is very clear, is that the irony of legalism, trying to keep the laws, as, as you'll see up there, the irony of legalism is that it doesn't take God's holiness seriously enough. People think if we just, you know, if God will bless me if I follow the laws. Well, the problem is it presumes that you have the ability to measure up. There are none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who ever can enter heaven. It is based upon grace. And these Pharisees, as, as I think sincere in their hearts as they tried to be, lacked the supreme sense of worship. It obeyed, but it doesn't adore. Friends, you can mess up a whole bunch of things in your Christian life, but if you are more about obeying the man-made laws than adoring the God who saved you, you have missed the boat. That's right where these Pharisees were. And let me also warn you that there is relational legalism, that you treat a person based on their performance or ability to give you something back is their value to you. We're guilty of this all the time. Well, the culture says, you know, you have to give and, and take from people. Friends, that is not Christianity. The Bible says we are to be servants. We are to lay down our lives for our friends. And these Pharisees would go to people, and if they, had a, if they could size up the situation and say, you know, if I become this guy's friend, he might give a little bit more money to the church. If I become this person's best friend, then he might be able to help me. They had taken man-made traditions and made them into commands God never told them to do. And you see there in verse 5 that uh, after explaining all this, Mark says, and, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him. Now notice this wasn't a humble request. This is very prideful. Jesus is being charged with a lawbreaker. He's being charged as one. He's breaking the traditions and, and his, his followers with him. Friends, Jesus posed a threat to everything they stood for. You know, legalism is where the truth becomes more narrow. Liberalism is where it becomes more wide. But you want to be wherever the truth is, and that truth sets you free. But they kept asking him, and they went up to him, and they asked him, and they basically said, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Can you just hear the pride dripping from that statement? Friend, let me just take a moment here to talk about truth, because we want to be about the truth. We do not, and you'll see this on the screen, but we don't want to be narrower or wider than the truth. Do you understand that? The truth will always take precedence over tradition. And as long as churches and ministries go, there will be a fallen tendency to slide ever so closely to tradition. But what is truth? Truth is whatever God says it is. Truth is whatever is consistent with God. It's in alignment with His Word, His mind, His will, and truth is reality. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is abounding in truth. Jesus said He's the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 17 says there is a spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth, that we are to worship him. John 4, in spirit and in truth. And John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, thy word, your word is truth. You can't be a saved apart from truth. You must worship the God of truth. But Jesus came not only to die on the cross, but to be the chief revealer and tradition of truth. Religious tradition competes with truth and it tries to suck it out. And friends, I'm here to tell you that when you give high ground of truth and allow tradition to take its place, you cannot worship God the way he needs to be worshipped. 
You cannot be saved and worship God. You got go through the emotions of a dead religion. Friends, what do we do with this? We do with this the very thing that God wants us to do. We do with this as a reminder to ourselves that are we in our fellowship making traditions out of things that are not biblical? Now, let me be careful here. I don't want to, I'm going to apply this a little later on in more detail, but I want just to know that the question we should be asking is not, have we done this before? The question we should be asking, is this what the Word of God allows us to do? Do you see that difference? That difference right there separates you from a billion people who go to a church worldwide where Jesus is re-crucified every Sunday because we believe, they believe, that Jesus' cross has not been finalized. That statement separates you from basically going and killing people in the hopes that you'll go to, go to heaven someday because you gave yourself as a sacrifice to take out the infidel. Truth versus tradition literally comes down almost to the fact that it could separate people from eternal life or not. And I pray that our church is at a place where we never put a roadblock in anything or anyone who would come to us except that which is biblical. So Darren, should we turn off the lights right now? Do we turn off the air conditioning? Well, we don't need it today, so that's another discussion for another time. But how far do you take this? You take it to the extent where if you ever see something that we make a tradition taking over God's word, we step back and say, whoa, that's not right. Friends, this can keep you. Some of you grew up in those churches. Some of you grew up in a church where every rule was crossed, and that's just the way it was, and, and, and there was no biblical justification for it. It's just the way it was. doesn't mean the heart was wrong like the Pharisees, but it doesn't mean it was biblically right either. You pray for that wisdom. Let's go to the second point. I think, uh, I apologize, I think I put the same thing twice here, but uh, secondly, I want you to see that these guys used man-made traditions as God-made commandments. There's a little bit of difference there. Jesus is going to play hardball with them, guys. He is, he is going to go to them. He's going to say to them, uh, you know, it's interesting, just a side note, when Jesus spoke to people who got the truth or were humble, he always went compassionately. He spoke to sinners very kind and compassionately. But when he went to the Pharisees, those who should know better, he just went boom, 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 and talked to them straight up. Because James 3.1 reminds us that teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. And here in verses 7 through 13, you're going to see this, that they're using man-made traditions as God-made commandments. And look at verse 7. It says, and he's quoting Isaiah here, but Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines that are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so what Jesus is saying, he's calling them hypocrites. Back in verse six, as he said, he called them hypocrites, religious phonies, spiritual actors, one who played religion over here but did a completely opposite out there. But isn't that how many people treat Christianity? I remember meeting a guy our first night in Westport, a fall, October 2005, seemed like an eternity ago. Guy was in a gutter between uh, um, Kelly's and whatever it was, I think it was Karma back then, uh, the bar, and I may have shared this, it's been a long time, but the man, he was drunk, as, I mean, he was just out of it. And we shared the gospel with him, and I remember him talking, and he said, oh man, I'm good, I'm good. I'm like, well, I don't know about that, dude, you're sitting in a gutter, kind of, you know, <laughs> you're not looking too good. And, and, and he goes, no, man, I did that religious thing a long time ago. I prayed that prayer when I was like eight or nine. My dad's a pastor. Oh, really? 
Well, let's hear more about that. His dad was a pastor of a Baptist church in central Missouri. He was out for the night with his friends, partying it away. Life was good for him. He said, man, I got this down. I prayed to receive Jesus, man. I'm good. What had nothing to do with this after that point. That man was banking his eternity on a choice he made when he was eight years old when there was no evidence that he was truly converted and saved, not just because he got drunk, guys, but he explained a whole litany of things. He'd walked away from his religion. It's exactly what Jesus is calling them out for right here. Legalism is any attempt to be saved by keeping the law and trying to keep man's rules that aren't found in the Bible. So Jesus tells them, they honor me with their lips. They talk a good game. They know the religious vocab. They know what to say to get out of the pastor's radar, so to speak. But their hearts are far from me. Wasn't it Jesus who said in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? Dave quoted that last week. Their body is in the worship and their mouth is singing praises, but their heart is not converted. And in vain do they worship me. There's no reality. They're just there to play. They're there to play church. They're frauds. They're fakes. They're phonies. They're everything. And then they take all that false stuff and they teach it to other people to go and make disciples. And Jesus tells him, look at verse 8. He tells him straight up what happens. That word straight up, I said like 10 times. You got a new vocab today, so here it is. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. They will replace the teaching of God. They're doing the very thing that they tried not to do, but they ended up doing subconsciously. They, 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 they wanted to do it right, but in doing it the way they thought was right, they went away from how God intended it to be. And in the New American Standard, I think, gets this right. But in verse 9, it says, And he said to them, You have a fine way. Your translation may say experts. You are experts, verse 9, in rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. They were clever at sidestepping God's rules. You ever notice when Jesus talks to the Pharisees that they always ask him these side questions? It's kind of like when, you're, uh, you know, when your kids ask you to do something or go somewhere and say, what do I have to do to go to the party? Well, you've got to clean your room, you've got to do your laundry, and you've got to do this, this, and this. And when you say that, you mean that they're going to do all these other things with that, but what they hear is do these three things and I go. And the time comes, and they get ready to go, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you, you didn't organize it, this. You just threw it in the closet, right? Do you see what's happening? It's like a creative teenager that sidesteps the law. They get up there, and, and these traditions are, a, 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 if I can use the modern term, they're a Jesus juke out of the way to do what they want to do instead of what God has asked them to do. And what he is telling them here is that they do not understand God's word. Friends, religion, and Amy will put this up, religion tells you, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Catch that difference. That makes the difference between heaven and hell, to be quite frank. Religion says, do these things and God will love you. God says, I love you because you didn't do anything. I did one thing. I died on the cross for your sins. We need this in every generation. Whenever truth is replaced by tradition, it invalidates the worship of God. And we must always call out tradition that's not rooted in the word of God and, and do that. That's why we have what we believe to be sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our guide. We don't have tradition upon scripture, but we say it's God's word alone. And he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, uh, he goes on to apply it a little bit more. It says, you will understand. 
he says this, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles or his father or mother must surely die. See, they had taken the author Moses, the human writer, and replaced it as the words that were, they replaced their words with Moses' words, and therefore they usurped the primary authority of God's word. And Jesus goes straight for the guttural. He calls out a cultural sin. Back in those days, if you were old and decrepit, you were just left to be old and decrepit. And this is why he tells him here that there's father or mother because they were looking for loopholes. These Pharisees, they were the pride of the community. Money was flowing. It was good. They were taken care of. They were respected. They got invited to all the parties, all the dinners. But Jesus here says, hey, Pharisees, how are you doing honoring your father and your mother? Notice it doesn't say honor your father and mother until you're 18 years old and walk out of the house. Notice it doesn't say honor your father and mother as long as they have a, a nest egg to keep them going. He gives no qualification of age. And as long as our parents are alive, we are to be honoring them. I mean, what if this was still in effect today? I mean, really, what about this? What if this was still in effect today? I mean, it's so important. But, but verse 11 says, but you say, but you say. They depart from the literal interpretation, and, and, and if a man says Corbin, then it's good. Let me give you the example. Let's say you came into a great deal of money, and if you would take it to God and say, God, it's, it's yours, it's Corbin, it's just a translation, and say, God, you take it, but when you have a financial need, you can't help your, your parents. But wait, you have all this money over here, and we're dying over here, but I gave it to God. Look at me. I'm so holy. I'm so righteous. And Jesus called them out and said, you hypocrites. You're taking a commandment of God and twisting it to your own gain. The money went to the temple and all those things, not to families in need. And as Amy puts this up, I want you to hear this clearly. Hypocrisy is not when we sin. Hypocrisy is when we use religious activity to hide our sin. Hey, pastor, I got a prayer request for you. Oh, yeah, what's that? Did you hear about fill in the blank? Hey, pastor, uh, I just won the lottery last night. I won the mega millions. I'm a millionaire now. Can I give a tenth of that to the church? No one's ever asked me that here, by the way, so <laughs> you're safe. But do you see what we do? We, we take prayer and we turn it to gossip. We take secular means and use it to this. But, but pastor, if I just get in there and I, I get lots of money and, and, and influence and I sell out my religion for a little bit. I can be like David and confess and say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And people will look at me and say, oh, how crazy. He loves Jesus. I did this in high school. We played a shoot 'em up game called Quake 3. First-person shooter for those uh, looking at my, uh, my, my geeks here with me. Uh, you know, and I turned off the blood because you can't kill people, right? They're just imaginary. Turn off the blood so I'm the holy Christian. If I could just be the best at this game, then maybe people will come to Jesus Christ. Great motivation. Terrible execution, Pastor. Because I used a very carnal game which was completely antithetical to anything God had for religious gain. Friends, it's not a small issue. Small issue. Hypocrisy is not when we sin. It's when we take religious activity and make it into something it's not. So what do we do with this? Let me give you, let me give you at least six or seven things quickly, and I promise it will be quick. What do we do with this? How do we guard ourselves as a church? How do we not be these guys, but yet at the same time, have traditions 
that are godly, that are honoring, that may not be word for word in the Bible, but are healthy? What do we do? Number one, first, we hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, guys, let me give you a little quick history. Some of you know this, but 30 years ago in a Baptist church, people questioned whether this was the Word of God. If you were there, would you just nod your head? Some of you all remember these fights, don't you? Is this really the Word of God? I mean, is this the inspired Word of God? Friends, we fought that battle. It's still there. We believe this is the Word of God. Now the question is, is it sufficient? Is it enough for us? Is it enough for us to believe that everything we need to run the church in our life is found within this book? That's the big question. And that's what these people had to deal with. There's nothing lacking. You know, I hear churches have leadership conferences, and they bring in these secular football coaches that are uh, you know, cussing up a storm behind the scenes, and then they're all holy when they show up in the front of the church. I love football. I'm all about those things. But the head football coach has nothing to say. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have everything to say to us, as well as the rest of Scripture. Psalm 17.9 says, the law, is per- law of the Lord is perfect. This testimony is sure. The Bible is sp- inspired, but we hold to the Bible. This is what it is. Friends, people died for this. People were burned over this. People were beheaded because of this book. Read it. Memorize it. Cherish it. Do everything you can to get it in you because this is what will protect us if we have a soft heart before the Lord and say, Lord, protect us from these traditions that may overtake. Secondly, resist the hypocrisy of being a Pharisee. Look, we've all fallen prey to the nature to neglect the inner matters of the heart. The real you is your heart, not your external facade. You know this. I, 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 you know, on my apps, I, People Magazine pops up every now and then. Uh, boy, some of those articles just make you sick, and I mean that. They're all created, everyone's created God's images, but it's just like, oh my goodness, can people be this vain? I read one the other day where the guy said, oh, God loves me and God does this. The guy just came out of the adult entertainment industry. He's still working in movies like that. Look, does God love him and want him to repent and believe the gospel? Amen, yes. But to use that as a way to get people to listen to him, just to pull that in, is exactly not what we're going for. Proverbs 4.23 says, your entire life, the, the, the heart is uh, the wellspring of life. Deuteronomy 5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Watch over your soul, watch over your attitude, watch over your thoughts and your heart. Third, elevate the esteem of your parents. Can I just say this? I know this church does this so well. But if you're not right with your parents, you're not right with God. Can I say that? Well, Darren, I got married and I'm cleav- I, I left my father and mother and now I'm doing the other thing. If you are not right with your parents, you are not right with God. Ephesians 6.1 says, obey your parents in the Lord. It says, listen up. When your parents are talking, turn off the TV. When your parents are talking, turn off the phone. Look them in the eye and don't put them off. So easy to do in this culture. Not only for the young, but also for adults. Wasn't it Jesus on the cross who looked at uh, John and said, Woman, your son, and to John, your mother? Even at the very last, Jesus took care of his own. We're going to skip the next one, Amy. Uh, we'll just go to the next slide, if you would, please. Thank you. And we'll just go to number one. Friends, and I, I say this to myself, but number one, if you want to find what a church or our church really worships, change some things. Seriously, what if next week we did the sermon first and did five songs after that, then did the offering, and then did the welcome? How would you feel? Some of you all wouldn't know what church you just walked into. Seriously. 
Or what if we decided that uh, the pastor is only going to wear Hawaiian t-shirts and cargo shorts the rest of the time? How would you feel? Yeah, some of y'all, yeah, some of y'all would be cold, <laughs> wouldn't it? It really would be. But friends, as we pray through things, may we be the most humble, unified group that we ever have. But maybe the way we do things, I'm not speaking anything in particular, I'm just speaking in general. But the way we do discipleship, the way we do evangelism, the way we do, you name it, may look a little bit different. But does our heart say we've always done it that way or is it only because of this is what God's word says? And I mean that. If we came in next week and this was pink fuchsia carpet, my resume would be out to many other churches because I'd probably be out the door sooner than you would know. I'm being facetious in a lot of ways, but would you pray whatever God brings us? And I don't know what that is, speaking in general. Whatever that is that we learn to work together, to talk about it, to pray about it, there are tough decisions to be made even today, but let's go forward together. If you want pink fuchsia carpet, there's a business meeting tonight. You can make that motion, but you've got to wait three months by the bylaws, so you've got a delayed satisfaction or something like that, whatever it is. Secondly, I want you to know that moral tradition without a living gospel becomes a die, without a gospel theology becomes a dying moralism. In other words, friends, if your goal in life, if our goal as a church is just to make people who who are nice say yes ma'am, yes sir, who, who, who love country and love things, those are great things, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel is, is that there aren't good people or bad people. There's those who are in him and those who are out of him. That's what the Bible says. And finally, I, 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 pray, I know this is true, but we worship not merely out of tradition or routine, but because there is power in the cross and no one is in the tomb. You don't come here on a Sunday morning just because, I hope. I pray you come here because Jesus is risen. I told you I'm going to say that every Sunday. We, we've got three weeks in a row. We're doing well, guys. But here it is. Church, you pray. I'm over time. But you pray, whatever God has for us, that we accept it with humble grace. We accept it with humble hearts. We don't allow bitterness to be rooted or gossip, but we allow God's word to speak. If we do that, we are on our way, the path of truth, less than the path of tradition. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, as we close out the day and get ready to sing and uh, pray over Jimmy in just a few moments, Lord, we pray. Father, this, this passage is so ripe of things. There's so much that can be said here about false worship and calendars. And Father, there's so much that can be said. But, Lord, I pray if there's one takeaway we take is that simply that your word is enough for all matters of faith and practice. Father, in those decisions where things aren't so clear, Father, there's not a scriptural command to have electricity or have a microphone or instruments or things like that that can be debated until the cows come home. Give us grace. Father, when there are decisions to be made in our families' lives, in our personal lives, in our church lives, Father, may we err closer to your word than any tradition. But, Father, if that tradition be founded in your word, then may we do the same as well. Father, let us do things by the book, not to an extent that we become Pharisees, but to the extent that we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, if there's one thing I pray our church is guilty of, it's that although we don't do all things, Father, the best we can is that our hearts are set on you. For, Father, we stumble too much, we fail a lot, and we sin all the more. But thank you where grace abounded, sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Though our sins be like scarlet, they are now as white as wool. Forgive us this day. Thank you for this sweet crowd. We pray for the many who aren't with us today, sickness, illness, weather. Father, we pray that you be glorified in their lives as well. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. God's people say, amen.